Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, folks, and thanks for making time for AOA here today. We certainly appreciate you joining us. We are going to be talking about a lot that's impacting agriculture, especially as we prepare for the busy harvest season across the northern Corn Belt. We've got concerns about river levels, and Mike Steenhook of the Soy Transportation Coalition will join us here in just a moment to talk about how those river levels look and what that impact could be as those combines start to roll. And then in segment two, it's the monthly grind, our once-a-month segment with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association, taking a look at what happens to this corn crop after it leaves your operation and makes its way into the global supply chain. In segment three, we are going to be talking pork health. Dr. Paul Sundberg of the Swine Health Information Center will be joining us. We're going to talk about what has been spreading around the world and the risks to swine health globally. And then we are going to close this show today by talking to Lucas Fries. He's the director of dairy market intelligence over at High Ground Dairy. And this is a great week to focus on the dairy market. Of course, World Dairy Expo happening in Madison. Wisconsin this week. Big crowd up there for that. And on Monday, we got the dairy products report. So Lucas is going to join us and break down what all has happened there in the dairy market. But let's jump right into it. As I mentioned, we are seeing challenges with river levels, notably in the Mississippi, but it's not just the Mississippi. It's truly across the country. And Mike Steenhook at the Soy Transportation Coalition has been sort of raising the alarm on this for the past two weeks. Mike, thanks for joining us today. It's good to be with you, Mike. Thanks for having me. When we talk about low river levels, and let's talk about the Mississippi first and foremost, Mike, how low are we talking? We're, we're not at catastrophic levels, are we? It, it's it's historic, and you know, industry officials are talking about uh, using those kind of terms. Um, you know, not since you know the the late '80s, uh, we haven't seen water levels this pronounced um, in, in and and as low. Um, you know, so it's been a considerable period of time, and it, it really impacts navigation in two ways, uh, the depth of the, the water and also the width of the water. Uh, because when you have low water conditions, you can't load as much freight per barge out of concern that you might have a grounding or scraping the bottom. So you can't put as, much, as many bushels per barge um, that you normally would. And you know, so for example, one foot of less water depth you're loading a barge with 5,000 fewer bushels of soybeans, and a typical barge can handle easily 50,000 bushels. So you're looking at a, around a 10% decrease in capacity just for one foot less of water depth. But it also impacts channel width. And because you, the, when you have less water, the river narrows, you can't get as many barges together, lashing together to move as one unit. So it really changes the economics of barge transportation. Mike, that's fascinating. You bring that up. I think a lot of us intuitively understand the water levels are low. We can't fill the barges as heavy component, but the width of the tow, can you talk about how that impacts sort of the cost to get grain, particularly beans down the Mississippi? Yeah, you know, it, it all, you know, barge transportation is just so well positioned to move a lot of heavy freight long distances in an economical manner, but it's all predicated on not only the amount you get in each barge, but um, you know, in the upper Mississippi River, north of St. Louis, you get typically 15 barges all connected together that moves as one unit. When you get south of St. Louis, you don't have locks and dams anymore because you, the river is wider and typically deep enough that you don't need to have those kind of size restrictions that locks will impose. So you will easily have 30, 35, even 40 barges all lashed together, moving as one unit all the way down to the New Orleans area. And but because the channel is not as wide as it normally is, you have to restrict the number of barges you're connecting together. So industry has actually limited that to a 25 uh, barges all lashed together maximum. So that's a that's a significant. If you're going from say 40 or even 35 down to 25, that really hits your the economics of your movement as well. Absolutely. And Mike, I would assume that the labor situation in the barge industry would be comparable to truck and rail. There's not enough tow drivers to operate additional tow barges, is there? 
Yeah, you know, it just puts stress on the whole system. So if you have a given amount of freight that needs to be moved, because farmers are growing a, a, a robust crop, if you can't put as many barges together, if you can't put as much in individual barges, then your recourse is if you're, if you're going to still use barge, you're going to have to get more rotations or turns of each barge in order to accommodate that given amount of freight. And that puts stress on the, the assets themselves, the number of barges, but also the workers who, who service the, those barge flotillas or tows. And the inevitable result of that is that puts upward pressure on, on rates, on the cost of barge transportation. We've seen a 41% increase in barge rates uh, for something look for loads that are originating in the middle of the Mississippi River north of St. Louis, south of Minneapolis-St. Paul. So 41% increase in rates over the past year. So it's just another cost that's being inserted into our food delivery system, and it doesn't come at a, at a very good time. No, it doesn't. With harvest knocking on the door, of course, those bean supplies are going to surge. What could be the impact as we get into harvest? Mike, is there any opportunity for rainfall events to get these rivers back up? And that, that's unfortunately, you know, the concern is, you know, we have, the, the forecast doesn't show a lot of precipitation, but even the precipitation that will occur, so much of the Midwest, the farm ground in the Midwest, is one big dry sponge. And so any rainfall that does occur will largely be absorbed into the, the ground, which is, you know, obviously good for farm ground, but that means that there won't be as much that will be channeled <clears throat> into the river system. So it's going to have to take a notable amount of precipitation to really start reversing this trend. And, you know, we're seeing the reports of what's happening down in the southern part of the U.S. where the growing season is earlier. Long lines at barge loading terminals in places like Tennessee and, and Mississippi. Um, you know, some of these barge loading facilities can't even load because the depth at their dock, I mean, the shipping channel might be a little bit deeper, but the depth at the dock is so low, it prevents them from even put loading barges there. So you're seeing farmers having to resort to maybe going to a rail loading facility. It's really upset um, our, our whole supply chain, and, and unfortunately, the worry is that's going to continue as we move further north as you know the Midwest gets more and more into harvest season. Yeah, that time yeah. is coming. Mike, I always try to find a silver lining. Is this low water level allowing the work and the maintenance that needs done on the locks and dams to get accomplished? Well, that, that's something that you know, obviously we'll be you know, working on, and, and that usually happens more in the in the uh, in the in the winter, unfortunately, there's a lot of planning that's required. You don't just kind of grab your toolbox because you've got low water levels and then scurry over to do some maintenance work. That that's usually more planned well in advance. So I, I'm not sure a whole lot of that will occur. I mean, the good news is that we still in the United States have the the envy of the world when it comes to our our multimodal supply chain. With all of the challenges that we're facing, we'll still be moving crops. But we do clearly have a reason for concern when it comes to the inland waterway system. We've got some risks out there. Mike Steenhook at the Soy Transportation Coalition has been tracking these risks and will continue, folks. You can find them at thesoytransportation.com. Thank you, Mike Steenhook. And stick around, folks, when we return. It's the Monthly Grind with our friends from NCGA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Most folks just stick with the diesel engine oil they know, because why sweat the details? But you don't. You're one of those who'd make the switch, and we're talking to you. Cenex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils give you the smartest oil for the toughest conditions. While the others experience wear and tear, you give complacency a kick in the pants. Cenex Maxtron Diesel Engine Oils, oil that runs smart. And we're live here outside the Perez family home just waiting for the... And there they go. Almost on time this morning. Mom is coming out the front door strong with a double-arm kid carry. Looks like Dad has the bags. Daughter is bringing up the rear. Oh, but the diaper bag wasn't closed. Diapers and toys are everywhere. 
Ooh, but mom has just nailed the perfect car seat buckle for the toddler. And now the eldest daughter who looks to be about nine or 10 has secured herself in the booster seat. Dad zips the bag closed and they're off. Ah, but looks like mom doesn't realize her coffee cup is still on the roof of the car. And there it goes. Oh, that's a shame. That mug was a fam favorite. Don't sweat the small stuff. Just nail the big stuff. Like making sure your kids are buckled correctly in the right seat for their age and size. Learn more at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. This is Ernie Johnson Jr. Sports is about overcoming obstacles. And college coaches work hard to help young men overcome Duchenne muscular dystrophy. It's called Coach to Cure MD and you can help. Text the word CURE to 501-501 to donate $25 on your next mobile phone bill. Or go online to coachtocuremd.org. Text the word CURE to 501-501. Help coaches cure MD. Brought to you by the American Football Coaches Association. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It is the first Wednesday of October, which means it is time for the monthly grind here on AOA. We are going to be talking with Chad Epler. He's a farmer from Columbus, Kansas, down there in the southeastern part of the state today. Chad, thanks for joining us. How's harvest look down there in Kansas? Mike, this is Sarah. Chad just actually texted me that he got disconnected somehow, so you might have to start with me. (laughs) Well, that is fantastic because also joining us on the show for the Monthly Grind is Sarah McKay. She is the Director of Market Development over there at NCGA. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about some new uses for corn. That is your role over at NCGA. And this week, Sarah, I want to talk specifically about pet food. Corn gets used in pet food. And I think the obvious guess is as the food itself, right? Is that where we're seeing corn get used most? Yeah, absolutely. So actually corn grain and corn gluten meal are the top two um, ingredients in pet food. Um, if you look at a report from the American Seed Industry Association, one of our partners in iFeeder, um, those are the top two most used plant-based ingredients in pet food products. Um, so a lot of our corn, while it's not as um, high volume as to our beef, pork, poultry, and, and dairy friends, it definitely is a significant usage of corn and something that we're finding is a very niche use of corn as well, not only in the corn food, um, uh, in pet food for, um, for dogs and cats, but also in um, There are so many options out there. Sarah, we're going to turn our focus to Chad Epler, who's growing that corn that these pets are going to be eating. Chad, tell me a little bit about harvest down there in southeastern Kansas. How'd it go this year, or how's it going? (laughs) 
Well, and I guess we are still trying to connect there with Chad. Sarah, thanks for sticking around with us. You mentioned there the corn and corn gluten meal are the two most used plant-based ingredients in pet food. But of course, that's not the only place we are seeing corn to get utilized here in the pet food industry. It's also being used in several different sort of behind-the-scenes areas. And, oh, I guess we are going to be reconnecting here with Sarah in just a minute. But it is incredible to see the way corn gets used not just on farms but it gets used really throughout the industry and one of the points that uh, that we are are looking to make here with this week's monthly grind is that the corn industry is moving this product not just through the conventional supply chains that we expect of course into ethanol fantastic usage for corn and livestock feed increasingly the industry is able to identify these areas outside of our traditional uses for corn and we're capitalizing on those markets. This is what we're working on right now, and it is making progress. The corn industry, going through the pet food channel alone, moved one, excuse me, one million nine hundred fifty-eight thousand sixty-one tons of grain into that particular segment. It has been a great market, and it's a market that has been growing not just on its own, but through help with a lot of other active folks. Let's take a second and see if we've got Sarah back on the line with us. Sarah, we have you back. All right, we're still working to get Sarah reconnected, but we do have Chad back on the line with us now. I believe, Chad, can you give us an update on Harvest down there in Kansas? You bet. Uh, our state right now, we're about 50% statewide. Um, in our southeast corner, uh, we've we've been done for about a month. Um, right now, statewide, probably 30%, close to 30% in the pretty poor uh, category. Just been a really hot, dry, kind of a tough summer for a lot of people. Yeah, that's true, especially down there. It got hot. It got so dry. Chad, you are a full-time farmer, and yet you also make time to serve on the uh, the board here at the National Corn Growers Association. What is it that, that provides value to you in getting active in NCGA? Well, honestly, I, you know, I have to admit, I was one of the people that uh, would always, you know, think that somebody would do the job um, for me. Um, and, you know, there would be somebody else that would handle this or somebody else that would handle this. And, um, being a former teacher, having served on other boards, just decided that it was, it was time to try to make a difference. And, um, certainly agriculture being the backbone of America, we need leaders to, uh, protect, um, the ways that we go about our farming business. And, um, so what better way than to get involved with NCGA, um, and certainly on the uh, the MDAT committee. That's right. That's where I was going next. That MDAT committee, the Market Development Action Team. This is where you guys are, are coming up with and promoting new ideas for corn. And Chad, what was it that made you want to be a part of the MDAT committee? Well, for me, always, you know, looking for other opportunities to, to expand the, the corn market um, really to expand agriculture. And if, you know, we produce the, some of the safest, um, healthiest grains in, in the world, and we need to do, you know, I mean, we do a really good job, but we need to continue to, to market the, the, the safety and, and the quality that we have here, certainly in our corn, um, but in all of our grains as well. And, our job is as as farmers to feed the world and with with the MDAT action team we're able to look for new avenues to to find uses for corn and, and that's exciting to me and I work with some really really great people it is exciting it's so neat to see these new developments come out we've got Sarah McKay back with us and Sarah we talked about the the use of corn in the pet food itself but of course corn is also used in some of the packaging is that right yeah, it's really interesting. Some of the efforts of the market development action team, we, we ask a lot out of chat and others when it comes to the, the scope of the portfolio of MDAT, everything from our traditional animal ag uses to what we call new uses, such as bio-based packaging, 
um, obviously pet food fits in here, things like sustainable aviation fuel. Um, but in the pet food space in particular, it's really interesting because they have some of the, the highest margins and there's this demand for these premium products that we're seeing where consumers are willing to pay more for um, sustainable packaging options. So this is kind of a really good market to kind of test out some of these um, plant-based and renewable packaging solutions, which of course could be made from corn, whether it's derived um, from sustainable polyethylene products or PET, some of those abbreviations you see on the back of plastic products, all that can be made from corn. We, uh, one of the things that we try to really focus on is not just the, the benefits of corn and pet food and debunking a lot of those myths, but also when it comes to corn packaging, we talk about here's the ways that it can be used, whether it's a corn starch-based uh, disposable bag for picking up after your pet or the actual um, packaging that your pet food comes in and, and how it can meet the same um, vapor barrier requirements, et cetera. So we work really closely with pet food companies and, and the pet food industry at events all throughout the year to help inform um, researchers both on the nutrition side but also on the packaging side. I'm so glad you brought that up because it's not just enough to do the research and to have the data. The important part is getting that research and data into the hands of people who can utilize it. And that includes going to trade shows. I understand NCGA will be at uh, this year's KibbleCon. Yeah, so in a couple weeks here, we're going to be at KibbleCon at Kansas State. Um, Kansas actually um, has quite a few pet food manufacturers in the state, and that's why um, Kansas Corn and, and Chad and, and his board uh, not only serve on MDAT, but also sponsor a lot of the work that we do um, at National Corn. And at KibbleCon, we're going to have a booth. We're going to be promoting um, research and development of these corn-based products and really the benefits to the pets. Um, for having corn in the diet, well, there was corn gluten meal, which we actually now just um, had a, had it approved by AFCO, which is kind of the overseeing organization for pet food ingredients. Um, to actually call it corn protein meal, debunking some of the um, myths around gluten in corn. Um, and so we're really going to be at CivilCon talking about that that change from corn gluten meal to corn protein meal. We're going to be talking about the benefits, debunking those myths around corn and pet food, and then talking about new opportunities for plant-based uh, packaging solutions. Getting the word out there of how American corn can help improve the diets of American pets, that's a win-win. Folks, if you want to get involved, Chad, how can people, where can they go for more information about NCGA or, or maybe to get involved as you have? Well, one, one of the easiest ways is to hop on the, hop on the website, um, uh, the National Corn Growers Association uh, website, uh, or contact their local state association. I, I was contacted uh, with people locally, and that got me on the state board. So I'm really, really um, glad that that happened. And um, so all you got to do is ask a question, and people will direct you in the right direction. That's what it's all about. There's a lot of helpful people in this industry. Visit ncga.com for more information about the National Corn Growers. Stick around for more AOA coming up next. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Less isn't always more. Take managing a fleet, for instance. You need a more complete additive package for a more complete burn, and that's exactly what you get with Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Roadmaster XL even adds more life to your fuel system's injectors and injector pumps. That's a lot more than we can say about typical number two diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, farm radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. 
Well, as we work through our Wednesday session, the uh, risk on sentiment we've seen through the trade the last couple of days seems to be gone as following a two-day reprieve from concerns about interest rates and its impacts on the markets outside financial markets. Once again, under heavy pressure here today, the U.S. dollar index bouncing over a full point higher. There was a lot of maybe optimism that we had reached the peak of monetary tightening but it seems that pessimism is back new zealand hiking rates by 50 basis points early on wednesday the outside markets sharp rise of the dollar impacting the grain market specifically corn and soybeans in a bearish way here as we work through the trading day wheat finding a little bit of strength but uh, really just a generally mixed to maybe even risk off day being seen here now with the uh, outside markets and stocks under pressure livestock market is relatively mixed here as well as we work through our morning trades so far. Now, StoneX released their October customer survey, revealing a national average cord yield of 173.9, up from 173.2 in September. That would be expected to produce a crop of 14.056 billion bushels based on USDA's September harvested acreage estimate. Its soybean yield fell to 51.3 bushels per acre this month, down from 51.8 in September, producing an anticipated crop of 4.515 billion bushels. That corn yield is especially interesting as a lot of traders expecting that corn yield to continue to move lower. Now, this uh, estimate from StoneX is the first of many private estimates out here over the next week as we get prepared for the October WASDE report coming up on the 12th. Livestock trade, as I mentioned, relatively mixed here today. Hogs finding a little bit of support after a sharp drop yesterday. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve together, we can make a difference bite by bite. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson and gentlemen to AOA. We're going to talk next about the hog industry, particularly, or I should say specifically, we're going to talk about the health of the hog industry, industry domestically and globally. In order to do that, we are going to turn to an expert, Dr. Paul Sundberg. He is the executive director of the Swine Health Information Center based up in Ames, Iowa. Dr. Sundberg, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Mike. It's nice to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. You know, it is fall, Paul. It won't be very long, and we will see curtains going up on hog barns around the country as winter starts to set in. Looking at the state of hog health right now, how do we look heading into the winter domestically in this country? Yeah, you know, there is some concern. Right now, um, PERS virus has increased activity in market pigs. One thing that we've looked at historically over, over multiple years is that when there's an increase in activity of, of multiple diseases, of different diseases in market hogs on those finishing floors, that tends to serve as a nidus for infection and, and a way for getting infection into sow herds. So it's kind of a circle that the finishing floors uh, increase in infection and then followed a month or two after that by the breeding herds. So there's an increase in PERS activity, especially in Nebraska and Missouri, and uh, this is relatively early on finishing floors, and that's an indication that people have to pay attention for what may be coming this, this winter. Absolutely. It's a reminder to put that added focus back on biosecurity, isn't it, Paul? 
Yeah, it sure is. I did tell you a couple of things about biosecurity. You're only as good with biosecurity as your weakest moment. So it's implementation 24-7 is really the issue here, and you've got to pay attention and be really committed to implementing biosecurity. The other thing about that is that the best way that you can become prepared for what may be coming at you is to communicate. Talk with your neighbors. Talk with the veterinarians. Have your veterinarian talk with other veterinarians. Find out what's going on around you because that'll give you a heads up on most likely what you're going to be seeing. All right, so we've got the alarm bells going on PERS headed into the winter. PEDV, Paul, how does that situation look? Yeah, PED still is nationally, it's still higher than what we'd expect. Um, so there's there's this continued activity. In 2022, it's been a, an unusual year that there has been much more activity of PED around the country than what we would have expected to happen, and that still is going on. PED, and that happened even through the warm months of summer. Uh, as we go into closing up the barns, as we go into colder weather, we could expect that PED activity may increase even more. Um, right now, especially in Iowa, Kansas, and North Carolina is where we're seeing most of the activity. All right. Good again. Be alert. Be aggressive about your biosecurity. Paul, domestically, are there any other emerging disease concerns that you're watching or that producers need to have on their radar as the weather gets colder? Yeah, you know, um, probably the one thing that needs to happen is for everybody to be also aware of influenza. Influenza is a virus of people and of pigs. It happens every fall, every winter. You get your influenza vaccinations as a person. We do the same thing with pigs. Influenza can move back and forth between pigs and people or from people to pigs. And so uh, that vaccination and being aware of the influenza status of your pigs and the herds and, and of people is really important. One of the things we have with our, um, our, our newsletter right now is we've got uh, Dr. Andy Bowman from Ohio State University on a podcast that's talking about influenza and talking about being aware and, and how to prepare for in, influenza season. Paul, where can folks find that podcast if they want some more information? Swinehealth.org. Swinehealth.org is the website, and that's the October newsletter. We've got a tab on there for newsletters. Click on the October newsletter, and all of that information is right in the newsletter. All right, folks, and these newsletters from Schick are a fantastic resource if you're in the swine industry or if you're just, uh, you know, concerned about protein production more broadly. And what I love is that Schick not only tracks what's happening here around the United States and around North America, they track what's happening globally. And that's where some pretty large risks are, most notably, of course, Paul, African swine fever. Can you give us an update on how that spread is uh, is continuing? Yeah, so ASF is alive and well and continues to move around the world. In the Dominican Republic, of course, it's the closest to us, so we pay special attention to that. Um, the, the positive rate in the DR has decreased from 40% to less than 20%, so that's a good sign. But the information coming from the DR in Haiti, that island of Hispaniola, is that um, that virus is probably going to remain on that island for a long time. This isn't a quick deal. This is a long slog, and it's something that we've really got to pay attention to. Um, there's also a disease happening in pigs in Ecuador that the Ecuadorian government is telling us that it's negative. It's been tested and negative for classical swine fever and African swine fever, but there are international organizations for animal health. The U.S. is part of that that has offered further diagnostic help to confirm that those are negative. So that's an important thing that we're keeping an eye on. It is. That was a weird case, Paul. That case in Ecuador, was that just a hog carcass that was found and tested, or was it on a commercial operation? No, it was on a commercial operation. But yeah, the weird part of it was that there were 10 pigs that were, were dead, that were mortalities, but it was eight months ago. And so they're doing a lot of work within the region to try to figure out, try to do testing and try to um, figure out just what was going on. Because if this, whatever this is, whatever this is, it's probably gotten a head start in that area. They are in a process of doing massive classical swine fever vaccination in that area. Even though it tested negative, they still are vaccinating for CSF. 
and we're looking forward to seeing further diagnostics, hopefully this week, that will give us some confirmation about what was going on down there. Yeah, that will be interesting to see. Hate to see something that close to home. Paul, I want to turn our focus to Asia. We had an outbreak of foot and mouth disease in Indonesia here several months ago. Can you give us an update? How is that going? And are the Australians still keeping their borders closed? Yeah, Australia is still keeping their borders closed. So far, they've been successful. They have been involved in supporting a massive uh, FMD vaccination program in Indonesia. They know that that's right next to them. They know it's a risk. Indonesia wants to control it because it's also a market issue for them. So there's a lot of vaccination that's going on there right now. That's the best way they're trying to get after it and, and control that disease. So far, it's stayed away from Australia, so that's a good thing. It stayed away from Australia. Has it spread anywhere else, or is the other places it's active just places you always find FMD? Yeah, the, the outbreak in Australia is, is unique in its extent across that country and in its level across that country, but it really hasn't spilled over to other countries that we know of yet. It's still contained on, on those islands, and that's why there's the big vaccination effort to keep that there. All right, Paul. Earlier this year, again in Australia, there was a major concern about Japanese encephalitis virus. Uh, we talked about it, I think, back earlier in the summer when it was spreading wildly. How did that outbreak go? Are they through the worst of it? And what does the future look like with regard to JEV? Yeah, Japanese encephalitis virus is a, is a cousin to West Nile virus that is spread by mosquitoes. And so um, during the... Uh, last winter actually during our last spring and their summer down there they had a lot of rain they had a lot of mosquitoes and they introduced a new strain of japanese encephalitis virus that affected estimates of six to ten percent of their pork production part of the issue also is that that's a zoonotic disease it can go from animals to people and they had uh, people that were infected they even had some deaths in people from japanese encephalitis virus so it's a really important issue. We don't have it here in the U.S., and so that's a good thing. But what we're looking at right now is the likelihood of JEV coming back to Australia as we go into winter, they go into this summer, and again back to a mosquito season. Um, they're going to be part of a symposium that we have with the University of Georgia that we're going to be talking about um, JEV and talking about the Australian response, as well as the U.S. Uh, prevention, preparedness, and response if we get it. Because if we get it, Paul, would it impact our exports? Is it one of those uh, those diseases that importing countries would block uh, American pork exports? Don't expect that. Uh, there are a lot of countries that look for any reason to do that, but we don't expect that. That's not a reportable disease That's that's one that is on the list of the high consequence diseases. This is, um, right now at least, uh, this is more of a production disease. And as I said, it's a public health issue. So it's an important issue to keep in mind. But um, right now, we don't have any indication and Australia hasn't had any trouble with, um, with exports. Okay. And you will be having that conference there at the University of Georgia when, Paul? Uh, that's middle of October. That's coming up just in a couple of weeks. And again, if people want to um, want to register for that, it can be attended either in person or virtually, and that can be done through this October newsletter. We have an article in the October newsletter where, where um, there's a, a link to the registration site, and so that's uh, October um, 17th, 18th, and 19th that we'll be having that at the University of Georgia. Folks, if you are in the hog industry, if you're concerned about protein production, get on there, check that out, and stay up to date with what is coming out of the Swine Health Information Summer. We've been speaking to the Executive Director, Dr. Paul Sundberg. And Dr. Sundberg, thanks for joining us on AOA today. Thanks, Mike. And everybody, stick around. We're going to turn our focus to the dairy market when AOA returns as World Dairy Expo continues in Madison. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. 
Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need our technical skills. Our math. Our engineering skills. You're going to need our help with your water. Your air. Your food. You're going to need our organizational skills. Our problem-solving skills. You're going to need our determination. Our honesty. Our compassion. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. And we promise, we'll be there when you need us. Today, 4-H is growing the next generation of leaders. Support us at 4-H.org. This is the place most people think of when they hear that a seat has been engineered for superior performance and designed with proven genetic traits because something like that could only come from a lab, right? But this is where Allegiant Seed by CHS comes from. It's made by farmers for farmers. Its advanced genetics and unbeatable value are proven here in their fields to make sure they do the job in yours. Talk to your CHS retailer about Allegiant Seed today or learn more at AllegiantSeed.com. We gather together in communities across the nation to remember and honor, to celebrate and support to light the night. Join us as we lift our lanterns high in order to move toward a world free of blood cancers. Join us as we light the night for a loved one. Join us. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Our mission is to cure leukemia, lymphoma, Hodgkin's disease, and myeloma. Our aim is to improve the quality of life of patients and their families. Join us. We are LLS, and when we walk, cancer runs. Join your community and help bring light to the darkness of cancer. Join us as we light the night. Find your local event at lightthenight.org. That's lightthenight.org. And we're live here outside the Perez family home just waiting for the... And there they go! Almost on time this morning! Mom is coming out the front door strong with a double-arm kid carry. Looks like Dad has the bags. Daughter is bringing up the rear. Oh, but the diaper bag wasn't closed. Diapers and toys are everywhere. Ooh, but Mom has just nailed the perfect car seat buckle for the toddler. And now the eldest daughter, who looks to be about 9 or 10, has secured herself in the booster seat. Dad zips the bag closed, and they're off. Ah, but looks like Mom doesn't realize her coffee cup is still on the roof of the car. And there it goes. Oh, that's a shame. That mug was a fam favorite. Don't sweat the small stuff. Just nail the big stuff. Like making sure your kids are buckled correctly in the right seat for their age and size. Learn more at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Would you know what to do in a poison emergency? Would you know whom to call? Well, the answer is poison help. 1-800-222-1222. Poison help is a 24-7 government hotline staffed by poison experts. It's free to call and available in over 100 languages. Every second counts in a poison emergency. Don't waste it wondering who to call. Save poison help in your phone today. 1-800-222-1222.
Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues here today. Up in Madison, Wisconsin, the World Dairy Expo continues today as well. It is going on all week. Dairy farmers from around the country and, of course, around the world have gathered together in Madison to discuss the state of their industry and how things look going forward. And that got me thinking this makes a great time to discuss the dairy market's outlook as we head into fall here in 2022. And to help me do that, to understand what is moving here in the world of dairy protein. Lucas Fees joins me. He is the Director of Dairy Market Intelligence at High Ground Dairy. Lucas, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Happy fall. Indeed, it is a happy fall for sure. Lucas, let's talk about Class 3 milk prices. They have been relatively elevated versus historical uh, price levels for the past two years. How are the dairy farmers coping with, uh, with things at these levels? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, thinking back to the spring, we saw class three at even more impressive levels than currently. We've come down a little bit since then, but overall, you're right. Dairy prices, including class three milk, remain pretty elevated. However, it is becoming a question of margins for a lot of farmers. Just because milk prices are high doesn't mean that profitability has skyrocketed like we might typically expect. We're still, uh, as we move into harvest here, watching feed costs very closely. Uh, this will really impact margins over the coming months and over the next year for farmers. So even though milk prices are healthy, it's not as pretty of a picture as we might have typically expected. That's a really good point. And you're right, Lucas, milk prices are down substantially from earlier this year. What are the factors that have moved the price downward on the fluid side? Yeah, I think a lot of that has driven by questions about how inflation is impacting consumers here, uh, especially as uh, families return to school and summer vacation and summer spending was ending. I think a lot of people kind of looked at their checking accounts and, and realized how much money they spent over the past few months and just how much different things have cost. So I think there are some demand questions on uh, from whether you're going out to restaurants or shopping at grocery stores. A lot of those questions are we're waiting for additional data on exactly how consumers are responding. On the flip side of that, too, uh, milk prices have come down a little bit as supply has somewhat rebounded here in the past few months. The first several months of this year, we saw really tight milk supply in the U.S., a little bit different from anything that we have experienced in a long time in this country. But into July and August, with the herd size rebounding, and yield pretty good as well. We have seen milk production kind of tick higher. So from a reduction on demand and a slight increase on supply, that's really kind of dented milk prices here in the past few weeks. Lucas, now I'm surprised to hear you say that despite the margin challenges, you expect to see this herd expand. Is that something that's going to be slow moving in your opinion? I think so. You know, it's always kind of a, a big shift to steer here, but you know, when from this spring, I think farmers started adding cows at a pretty hefty pace uh, into summer as well. And I do think that will kind of continue at least uh, for another few months here. But I think the big question on milk, on herd size, on margins, the big wild card comes into next spring, you know, after uh, farmers have kind of paid a lot of cash for feed, after uh, milk prices kind of seasonally contract a little bit further after the holiday demand period. I think that uh, farmers will have some pretty big strategic decisions to make here into the first quarter of 2023. And that's really when we'll get a feel for how uh, the herd size and milk production will kind of shape up for the next calendar year overall. All right, that'll be our big update on supply. On the demand side, Lucas, you touched on that, and I understand we had the dairy products report out earlier this week. Was there anything on there that caught you by surprise? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, we did get uh, that dairy products report. This is August data that we got this week. I think the biggest surprise for me was, you know, we saw milk production uh, posted one of its biggest year-over-year -year gains in, in almost a year into August, but 
from the dairy products report perspective, it was kind of a struggle to see where exactly all that milk went. Uh, cheese production, especially cheddar production, was lower versus prior year and actually kind of the lowest August cheddar output in a long time, which was a bit surprising based on the additional capacity that we've added in this country over the past few months and years. Uh, I think one of the biggest factors impacting that is mozzarella, actually, milk flowing into mozzarella plants instead. I think that kind of speaks to uh, a recessionary or inflation-driven pizza demand that uh, pizza sales kind of do pretty well when the economy uh, starts to turn down as families kind of look for cheaper options. So that wasn't necessarily yeah. surprising to see, but uh, interesting to see the numbers and the data for sure. Lucas, we've been talking for a couple of years about the push back towards real butter, and we've seen butter sales definitely moving higher over the past several years. Is that a trend that looks like it's going to continue as we come out of COVID? Oh, yes. Uh, that has been the kind of the talk of the industry over uh, not only the past few weeks, but the past few months. I think, uh, you know, from my perspective, from High Ground's perspective, we were pretty bullish pretty early this year on the butter situation, just kind of looking at the tighter production over the first half of the year and the pretty elevated demand that really isn't necessarily impacted that much by price or substitutions at this point. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, consumers uh, are definitely still favoring milk fat yet again. Um, we did hit a new all-time record high butter price in September. We came off just a uh, you know, not that much, down maybe a dime, and we're back into the 320s again here as we talk in early October, and the situation remains tight. I think the end users are still short as we move into the holiday demand period. Uh, from a supply side, there's really not much butter left to kind of fulfill these holiday orders, so it is possible, uh, it is likely, I should say, that we'll hit another record high on butter here in October. Wow. Well, there is a bright spot for dairy producers, folks. We've been talking with Lucas Fees, the Director of Dairy Management Intelligent at High Ground Dairy. Lucas, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And folks, tune in tomorrow. We'll continue this discussion and we'll talk about the issues truckers are facing as they look out to the year ahead. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting.